notorious bank robber was asked why he robbed banks. And he replied, because that's where the money is. Well, we might ask the appropriate question, uh, why do we come to church or why do we read the Bible? And of course, uh, that's where God is. Well, uh, we remember, of course, that God is everywhere. Uh, wherever we go, God is there. Uh, theologians uh, call that omnipresence. That prefix omni means everywhere or all. God is everywhere present. He is all present. Uh, as we sang a few minutes ago, uh, from the lowest uh, to the lowest grade to the highest heaven, and so on. God is everywhere. Well, we'd like to look today, in the beginning of Genesis, at the origin of man. Uh, who are we? Where do we come from? And uh, what is our destiny? The origin of man is set forth here in Genesis 2, verse 7. From this chapter 2 in Genesis, from which Kevin read just now. Genesis 2, verse 7 says, The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul, or a living person, or a, a human being. That's the uh, way that man came to be. Uh, this text, Genesis 2, 7, is sometimes called the golden text of anthropology, or the doctrine of man. Uh, the word uh, man comes from the Greek word anthrope, and ology is the study of. So we put them together, you've got the doctrine of man, or the study of man. That's what anthropology is. Genesis 2-7 uh, is certainly, and could rightly be called, the golden text of anthropology. Notice it's a very simple equation. Dust of the ground plus the breath of life equals a living person, a living soul. Now you don't have a soul, you are a soul. Sometimes people say, well, God put this immortal soul in the man. Well, that's not what it says. The dust-made man became a living soul, a living person, or a human being. I say that's a very simple equation, nothing uh, difficult about it. Man was made with the possibility of living forever. Now, God said, if you eat of that tree, you're going to surely die. If Adam had uh, avoided that tree and ate of all the others, like he had the privilege of doing, he would probably be alive today. At least I have to think he would still be alive today. But he chose to disobey God. And when he did, he plunged the whole human race into the condition of sin and death. Let's read chapter 2 in Genesis, beginning with verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Notice man was to be God's custodian. He was to take care of garden, of this beautiful garden. Uh, it's also called paradise. And paradise has nothing to do with heaven. The word paradise is an old Persian word that means garden or park. God made the man, put him in this beautiful garden or park to be his custodian. Verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now there's nothing vague about that statement. It's easy to understand. 
I can't imagine how anyone could misunderstand that. God says, eat of that tree and you're going to surely die. But then the dust-made serpent came along with a different story. Chapter 3, verse 4. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day that you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened, and he shall be as gods, or Elohim, knowing good and uh, evil. And then verse 6. Notice the verbs in this verse. Genesis, 4, Genesis 3, rather, verse 6. And the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired, and to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave unto her husband with her, and he did eat. All these verbs. Verbs are action words, and there's a lot of action going on here in Genesis 4 uh, and verse 6. Well, this is a sad story of the human race. Death is a reality that uh, no one can evade. Yet most people are terribly unsure what, if anything, comes after death. The great religions of the world offer a variety of teachings on what lies beyond death. Uh, from an uh, afterlife of eternal bliss to eternal torment, to an unending uh, cycle of reincarnations. After death, you may become a pig or a cat or a dog or a leaf or a tree or whatever. That's paganism and superstition. The skeptics and atheists expect nothing more than non-existence beyond death. There is nothing beyond death, according to them. No wonder people are confused about death and beyond. Death separates loved ones, divides families, and offers uh, no certainty of future reunion. Uh, death has touched all families, and sometimes it falls like thunder in our ears. Well now, what does the Bible say about death? We may be surprised at what the Bible says if we haven't really studied it. It's not at all what many churches teach and what many people believe. Whom do we believe? God or the serpent? God says, Adam, you eat of that tree, you're going to surely die and return to the dust. The serpent came and said, oh, no, no, you're not sure to die. Many people today say, oh, you don't die. There is no death. You just swap places, <laughs> you see. Oftentimes at funerals, mourners are told that human beings are composed of two parts, a physical body and a, quote, spirit or, quote, soul that lives on after the body dies. That is totally untrue. It's based on pagan Greek philosophy. The Greek philosophers Socrates, uh, Aristotle, and Plato taught that. And it said the Greeks have had such great influence on the cultures of the world. And, of course, it came into the church many, many years ago. Before the Greeks, the Persians taught that. And before that, the Egyptians believed in the transmigration of souls. It's never found in Scripture, however. Most people believe that the human, quote, soul can go to heaven or hell or remain behind on earth to, to communicate with the living 
or be reborn into another human body or as I say some other animal you know people you've probably seen them on TV talk shows and read about them coming back in the next life what are we going to be <laughs> will we be a pig a dog a cat or whatever some people like to choose what they want to be in the age to come well that's just pure paganism and superstition nothing more Yet this theory, this popular idea, the physical body plus, quote, an immortal soul equals a human being is not biblical at all. God did not put an immortal soul in the man. That's not what it says. It says the dust made man plus the breath of life became a living person or a living soul. And again, I say you don't have a soul, you are a soul. You know, the eight people that were saved in the ark, Peter says, eight souls were saved in the ark, or eight persons. That's obviously the meaning. And we know who they were. Mr. and Mrs. Noah, and uh, their three sons, and their wives. And uh, that is the record uh, of the Bible. Uh, eight persons were saved in the flood, or eight souls. Same thing, you can say it either way. It's exactly the very same thing. In the Bible, the word for soul is translated from the Greek and Hebrew words, and uh, they, uh, neither one carries the idea of an immortal, independent identity that can go on living after the person's body dies. That's never suggested anywhere. The Hebrew words translated spirit, the Hebrew word translated spirit may also be translated breath or wind. So a spirit is the idea of wind, the breath of light. You see, we breathe air. Animals breathe air just like we do. They can't live without air. Neither can we. We have to all breathe. And uh, as we said in Dean's Sunday School lesson, God gives to all life and breath and all things. See, we couldn't live one minute without God's breath. The Greeks brought into Christianity the idea of an immortal soul. But this idea was not in the minds of the Bible writers when they used the Greek and Hebrew words. Never in all the 1600 times the words soul and spirit occur in the Bible are they ever called immortal. Never. Now people, you hear about it all the time, even Christian people, talk about your immortal soul, your immortal spirit. The Bible writers are totally silent on that. The word immortality is used five times in the Bible. Once only God has it. 1 Timothy 6, verse 16. God who only has immortality. And I would interpret that as inherent immortality. That is, God is the only one who's uh, from everlasting to everlasting. He's the only one who's always been immortal. Uh, Jesus received immortality by a resurrection from the dead. And that's why I believe in immortality today. Christ was a mortal man. He died. He spent three days in the grave. And God raised him from the dead to immortality. And he's promised to do the same for us. To raise us to immortality. Once the word immortality is used, that Jesus brought it to light. 2 Timothy 1 verse 10. Christ has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Once it's used that we should seek it, Romans 2, verse 7, we are to seek for glory and honor immortality. 
Now, if God told us to seek it, it's obvious we don't already have it. Why would you seek for something you already have? No, no, we are seeking immortality. We are candidates for immortality. That's the clear teaching of the Bible. Then the word is used twice that we cannot receive it until the resurrection. And we'll come to that in 1 Corinthians 15 here in a minute. And uh, by the way, the word immortal is used only once in all the Bible. 1 Timothy 1 verse 17. Now unto the king, immortal, invisible, the only wise God. And the word wise is deleted in the later translations. And the song that we sang a few minutes ago, a number 40 in our book, is based on that verse. Immortal, invisible, God only wise. He's the only one. Uh, the, the word immortal is applied to God, the only place that is used in all the Bible. God is the only one that has inherent immortality. The angels, I, I believe, have immortality. They were created that way. And Christ received it by resurrection. And we, too, will receive it when Christ comes and the resurrection takes place. The only, way, the only way we can ever be immortal is by the gift of God that comes through Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. How did he do it? Through his death, burial, and resurrection. He was mortal. He died. He was raised to immortality. And God has said, uh, the Bible says, as God hath raised up the Lord Jesus, so he will also raise us up. That is the great hope that we have. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, this great resurrection chapter, beginning with verse 51. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51, the apostle says, Behold, I show you a mystery. I've shown a mystery before. The word mystery doesn't mean something that's mystical or uh, incapable of being understood. In Paul's writing, the word uh, mystery usually means new revelation. Here is something to herefore unrevealed. So Paul, now the, in the Old Testament, resurrection is taught, but uh, translation of the living at the coming of Christ is not. So I would have to conclude that that is the mystery part of the passage, the new revelation, not revealed in the Old Testament. I show you a new revelation. We shall not all sleep and all be dead when Christ comes will all be changed. The wicked will be resurrected. The living will be changed. How long does it take? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. When? At the last trump. This is the last trumpet for the church. I would suppose in the millennium there will be many, many trumpets. But in context here, this trumpet is limited to the church. Paul is dealing with the uh, dead in Christ and the ones that are living. No one else. He's talking to, he's focused on believers. Only believers will respond to this trumpet. The rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished, uh, we're told in Revelation 20. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So here is our great hope. Today I say again, we are candidates for immortality. We're just as sure to gain eternal life as we already had. It's sort of like money in the bank. 
Uh, you may have $5,000 in a bank downtown, but you don't have it on your person, see? And, but uh, it's there. It has your name on it. It is yours. Remember, Jesus said, Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give every man according as his work shall be. Revelation 22, verse 17. So our reward is in heaven. That is true. And when Christ comes, he says, I will bring that reward with him, he said. And he will give it to all who believe in him. So immortality is not the normal condition of the human soul. It is a gift of God to overcoming believers. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Romans 6, verse 23. It is a gift of God that we will receive at the, at the second coming of Christ when we are raised from the grave. Eternal life is a gift, notice. It cannot be earned. It cannot be deserved. It is a reward. It is a gift to all of believers. Why then do many Christians think our immortal souls will go straight to heaven or hell uh, when we die and stay there for all eternity? This mistaken belief originated with the very first lie in all of human history, the words of the serpent to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember this dust-made serpent said, you shall not surely die. And I say, many people today choose to believe we don't die. We just go someplace else. It's a denial. Many people deny the reality of death. And they also deny the reality of sin. Well, I'm here to tell you that sin is a reality. And the wage of sin is death. And I'm here to tell you that death is a reality. But Jesus Christ is the answer. He is the resurrection and the life. Throughout human history, most human beings have believed that lie of the serpent. You're not sure to die. It's really sad. Because uh, if we believe that uh, we go to our reward or punishment of death, then there's no need of Christ's return, no need of the resurrection. And why about all of these verses, dozens and dozens and dozens of verses, that speak of Christ's return and the resurrection of the dead and the judgment of the wicked and then the punishment of the wicked. But it makes no sense to punish the wicked to death and then judge them at the end of the world. Why bring punishment before judgment? That's contrary to all fair reasoning. Today in this country, we are assumed innocent until we are proved guilty. God certainly would not be guilty of punishing people for hundreds of years, wicked people who've died, and then at the end of the age, well, we better judge them. No, that's contrary to all fair reason. People have got that turned around. The Bible says when God created man, he became a living soul, a living person, or a human being. The human body plus the breath of life equals a living person, a human being, a living soul. When a person dies, their process is simply reversed. Psalm 146, verse 4 says, when a man dies, his breath goes forth, he returns to his earth, and that very day his thoughts perish. A great verse, take it home with you. Psalm 146, verse 4. In the Garden of Eden, man made man of the dust. When he dies, he returns to dust. In the Garden of Eden, God put the breath of life into the man. When he dies, his breath goes forth. Some translations say when a man dies, he breathes his last. And that's really uh, the idea. 
uh, this dust of the ground plus the breast of life became a human being. He could think and act and make decisions. Uh, we uh, have consciousness and we can function and carry on conversations because our brain is functioning. But when you die, your brain is part of the body that goes in the grave at death. We feel pain because our nervous system functions. And our nervous system is a part of the human body. And when we die, the, the nervous system is put in the grave with the body. So there's no pain in death. Think how many people think their loved ones because they didn't live for God or somewhere in torment today. It's totally untrue. You see, this serpent's lie in the Garden of Eden is the basis of all false religions. That's where it came from. It's sad, but many people choose to believe that. The body without the breath of life is no longer a living being. There's no basis in the Bible for the idea that when our eyes close in death, our spirits ascend to a higher, exalted state. No basis at all. It should be called by its right name. Death is the cessation of life. There is no life in death. I'm going to read a couple of verses, a couple of passages, I should say, from the Old Testament. I'm going to read from the New International Version. Ecclesiastes chapter 9 is the first one. And verse 5. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5. For the living know that they shall die. Now we know that's true. The living know they'll die. That's a self-evident truth. But the dead know nothing. Now I ask you, what part of that verse, or that statement, don't some theologians believe or, or understand? <laughs> How many ways can you interpret that? The dead know nothing. How much can you argue over that? How many ways can you... Uh, can you interpret that? The living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even the memory of them is forgotten. As far as this life is concerned, uh, they have no memory, they have no consciousness, they have no knowledge of the passing of time, they are in unconsciousness until, until the resurrection. Then another passage is in the book of Psalms, Psalm 90. This is a psalm written by Moses, by the way. Psalm 90. I'm going to read the first six verses from the NIV. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, where you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. See? Now Moses here is going to contrast God's everlastingness with our few days of our lives that are full of trouble, as Job says. The contrast. God is eternal. We are mortal. For a thousand years in your sight, well, verse 3, you turn men back to dust or back to death. That's the idea of saying, return, O dust, O sons of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like a day that is gone by, or like a watch in the night. You sweep men away in the sleep of death. 
They are like the new grass of the morning, though the morning is, uh, though in the morning it springs up new, by evening it is dry and withered. Man is compared to a blade of grass in comparison to God. God is from everlasting to everlasting. But our few years in this life are 50 or 60 or 80 or 90 or 110. Is no more than a, a, a night in the wa watch in the night or as a day, a 24-hour day in comparison to God because He is uh, eternal, you see. And verse 12 in this verse, I like the way it's stated in the Living Bible. Uh, Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days and recognize how few they are and help us live them as we should. That's a good prayer for all of us. Psalm 90, verse 12, the Living Bible. Then let's look at uh, John chapter 11 in the New Testament and notice what Jesus said about death. He refers to it as sleep also. Uh, John 11 records the resurrection of Lazarus. It's recorded only by John. It's not recorded by the Synoptic Gospels of Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke. Recorded by John only. Uh, Jesus spent a lot of time with his family, Mary and Martha and Lazarus. I don't know if Jesus had favorites, but uh, if he had favorites, I would say this family uh, ranked pretty high on his list. He spent a lot of time with him, with them, I should say. Uh, on one occasion, he was away from them, and Lazarus died. And he heard about it, but he spent two days before coming back. And... Uh, uh, that may be surprising, but uh, that's what the record says here in John 11, verse 6. And uh, he came back, and uh, they told him that Lazarus was dead, and Jesus said, well, Lazarus sleepeth. Verse 11, the disciples said, well, if he's sleeping, he's doing well. They thought he was sleeping, taking a nap. And Jesus said, verse 14, Lazarus is dead. One verse, Jesus says, Lazarus is asleep. And then the next verse, or the 12th, 14th verse, he says, Lazarus is dead. Well, I don't have time to, to go through all this material, so I have to cut through some of it to get where I want to go. But uh, in verse 17, Lazarus had been in the grave four days already. Keep that in mind. Lazarus had been buried in the grave for four days. And he came, uh, Jesus came, and one of the girls said, uh, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus said, thy brother shall live again. Rise again, verse 23. And Martha said, well, I know he'll live again in the resurrection at the last day. And Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Believest thou this. See, that's the thing. Jesus says, if we live and believe in him, we'll be resurrected to immortality and we'll never die. The question is, do you believe this? That's what Jesus said. Do you believe this? That's the important uh, thing. Well, going on through here, through this chapter, verse 35 says Jesus wept. Uh, Jesus uh, lost a dear friend, Lazarus, and he was deeply touched. Anyway, they were going to the tomb. Jesus said, where have you laid him? And they took him to the tomb. And uh, verse 39, Jesus said, take ye away this stone. And Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. His flesh had already begun to corrupt. And the girls didn't know what he was talking about, you see. Jesus says, 
he will rise again. So he went to the tomb and uh, Jesus says, take away the stone, notice. Now Jesus could have moved, removed that big stone with a flip of his finger, but he let them do what they could do. You see, I'm believing more and more that God is not gonna do for us what we can do for ourselves, see. They could roll away the stone, so Jesus said, roll it away. You roll it up there, so roll it away. And then Jesus uh, said to him, verse 43, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth from the grave where he had been placed, you see. The uh, resurrection of Lazarus here was to mortality, evidently. He died again. We'd have to assume that because Christ is the only one that's been raised from the dead to immortality. In that he died, he died in sin once. In that he lives, he lives unto God. Death has no more dominion over him. Jesus was raised from the dead to immortality, never to die again. This is the uh, cold, brutal truth of the scriptures. One of the great evangelists uh, used to say that uh, when a person dies, 10,000 of our spirits could dance on the point of a needle. Does that appeal to you like it does to me? 10,000 of us on a point of a needle is not very, there's not very much there really. Well, who wants to be reduced to nothingness? You know, that doesn't appeal to me one little bit. Now, another passage, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I have read this passage and the Corinthian passage many times at funerals and beside open graves, and I've never failed to feel the comfort and assurance that we have in God's word for all who believe in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, uh, brethren, uh, the Lord doesn't want us to be ignorant, or as some translations say, uh, uninformed. God wants us to be fully informed about our hope beyond the grave. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, referring to the dead, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Now there is a class of people in this world who have no hope. People without Christ have no hope beyond the grave. On the tombstone of every unbeliever, you could write the epitaph, no hope. No hope without Christ. Verse uh, fifth, well, let's read the whole verse again. For if we believe, verse 14, that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with them. Or as the New English Bible says, God will bring them to life with Jesus. God has... Uh, given Christ all authority in heaven and earth, authority to raise the dead and judge the world and set up the kingdom and build the church and all that. It's God's program, but Christ is carrying it out. Uh, Christ said in Matthew 28, uh, verse 18, all authority, all power in heaven and earth is being given to me. So Christ will carry out the program. Verse 15, for this we see in you by the word of the Lord, and Paul wasn't writing his own philosophy, he's writing the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. The church is made up of two groups, the ones who have fallen asleep in death and the ones who are still living. It doesn't make any difference which group we're in when Jesus comes. Both groups together are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. 
and so shall we ever be with the Lord. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. Not another Lord, not some ghostly invisible spirit, but the Lord Jesus, the one that was crucified and raised the third day and spent 40 days on the earth in his post-resurrection ministry. And then he ascended into heaven. He's the one. The Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, the dead in Christ shall rise first. Notice Paul affirms of the two groups of believers, the ones who are dead and the ones who are living, the ones who are dead are dealt with first. Then what about the ones still living at that point in time? The enemy which are alive and remain shall be caught up together. One group does not precede the other group. With him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort or encourage one another with these words. And what an encouragement it is to know that we will see our loved ones again. Our loved ones who close their eyes in death, we will see them again in the resurrection of when Jesus comes. Now in death, as in sleep, we are not conscious and we cannot communicate uh, with anyone and no one but the Lord. No psychic and no medium can, has power to awake us from that sleep. Uh, last uh, few months I've seen several psychics on, on TV shows, talk shows. And I don't know how they do what they do, I, I really don't. But I know one thing. The dead know nothing, and I know they don't talk to them. That much I know for sure. The dead know nothing, and the psychics cannot communicate with them. I say I don't know how uh, these people do what they do, but uh, in fact, uh, communicating with the dead or trying to communicate with the dead in the Old Testament is called an abomination of the Lord. It's something I don't want to be involved in. It's an abomination uh, to the Lord. The Bible says when Jesus comes, Philippians 3 verse 20, that he will change our lowly bodies and fashion them like on his own glorious body, a body like Christ. And we know he had a physical nature. He ate with his disciples after he was raised from the dead, according to Luke uh, 24. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 14 says, as God raised up the Lord Jesus, so he will also raise us up. And Jesus said in Luke 14, verse 14, you will be rewarded at the resurrection of the righteous. Another great verse. Take it with you today. Easy to remember. Luke 14, verse 14. Our Lord who spoke never like man spoke said, you will be rewarded at the resurrection of the righteous. So the next funeral you attend, you need not wonder if the deceased is enduring the flames of hell or hovering up in heaven watching the suffering of the grieving family below. With a breath of life gone, the dead person rests in dreamless sleep. He will not be disturbed until Jesus comes again to resurrect to eternal life those who await his return. He said you'll be rewarded when? At the resurrection of the righteous. Then all believers will be made immortal. We're no doubt living in the perilous times of the last days. I don't have time to turn to it, but 2 Timothy 3, the first of five verses, speak of the perilous times of the last days. Uh, these five verses uh, give us a description of the days immediately preceding the return of the Lord. Read that passage this afternoon and see how it fits our 
generation. Uh, as uh, residents here in the 20th century, we hear boom from time to time. Remember the boom of 9-11 when those airliners went into the World Trade Centers in New York and one into uh, the Pentagon and one uh, in a field in uh, Pennsylvania. Well, the next boom we hear could be the trumpet of God, the end of the age, and the resurrection to immortality for all believers. And, of course, the living will be uh, translated. And notice uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. The 2 Timothy will be, uh, the living will be translated uh, to meet the Lord in there. They're not in the grave, but they'll just be changed without going into the grave. That one generation. And the dead will, are raised, and the two groups are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And we are to live and reign with Christ in the age to come. A second Timothy chapter 2 verses 11 and 12. Second Timothy 2 verse 11. It is a faithful saying. Now this is true. God's word is true. It's faithful. You can count on it. It is a faithful saying for if we be dead with him we shall also live with him. If we suffer with him we shall also reign with him. So that is the great hope that we have. In closing, I'd like to share with you two articles that came across my desk uh, fairly recently. One concerning Einstein. Einstein was on a train out of New York City. As the conductor came through the passenger coaches, Dr. Einstein began to look frantically uh, through his coat pockets for his ticket. By the time the conductor arrived at where the renowned scientist was seated, he had turned out of all his pockets in both his trousers and coat and was proceeding to search through his briefcase. The conductor, recognizing Einstein, said, Don't worry, Dr. Einstein, I trust you, and proceeded to collect the tickets from the rest of the passengers. And then about 30 minutes, uh, the conductor came back through the uh, cars again collecting tickets, and Einstein was down on his knees digging into the briefcase and suitcase and looking under the uh, seat and behind sticking out in the aisle. And the conductor saw what was going on and the conductor said, It's okay, Dr. Einstein, I told you, I trust you. And Einstein said, Young man, this is not a matter of trust. This is a matter of direction. I have no idea where I'm going. <laughs> well, as believers in the Lord Jesus, uh, we know who we are. Uh, we know uh, where we're going and we know how to get there. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. The other article is Keep Your Fork. I may have shared this with you sometime back. I'm not sure. Anyway, it's called Keep Your Fork. Old brother uh, and sister Joan had served the Lord for many years. They trusted his mercy to forgive this, their sins. They often confessed to grant them an eternity that they knew they did not deserve. Now it would soon be time for them to die. We have this request, said the Joneses to the pastor, before the casket is closed at our funerals, please put forks in our right hand. Each of us want to be buried with a fork. The pastor looked puzzled, but Sister Jones went on. Whenever we've eaten a meal, a fine meal, the hostess picks up the dishes of the main course with a reminder, keep your fork. And we've all heard that. I always like to hear that. When we hear that, we know the best is yet to come. Dessert will soon be served. We believe, she went on, 
that God has promised his children eternal desert at the resurrection of the dead. We've had a great uh, first course in this life, but the best for us is still lies ahead. The fork can remind others that God will surely serve up his best for them at the resurrection if they believe and trust in him. So uh, keep your fork. At the resurrection, uh, all believers throughout all the ages, Old Testament saints and New Testament saints, will be rewarded at the resurrection when Jesus comes. Our gracious Father in heaven, the living, loving God of creation, we praise you and thank you for the gospel to teach and preach in these crucial days. We thank you especially just now for the great hope that you've given us of eternal life in your coming kingdom, life beyond the grave, where there'll be no sin, sorrow, or death. Father, I just pray that each one of us here today and each one of our loved ones will have an abundant entrance into your everlasting kingdom when the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In Jesus' name, amen.